Hello, Ghostbusters. This is Janine Melnick speaking. Yeah, the real one. Oh, sorry to hear your place is haunted, but the guys, they're out at the moment. Really? You want me to put you on hold? Well, okay. The hold music is Reitman for the Job, podcast with Ross May. Dr. Vankman says it's all we can afford. Yeah. Okay, I'll talk to you later when they're back. Bye. Starting this Saturday on ABC, calling all kids to a playground of adventure. Let's go! In the land of was, you can call on the Wuzzles. When it comes to caring, when it comes to sharing, you can always call the Caring. For Stone Age adventures that will rock the fun out of you. <laughs> call up the Flintstones when they were kids. Dabba, dabba, Who are you going to call if you're into big thrills and you aren't afraid of ghosts? Based on the hit movie, The Real... These dogs are calling out to you because they need a special home. So if you adopt the pound puppy, they can be your very own. Make this rabbit your favorite habit and take this bird with those famous words. I call I call putty cat. Call it the Bugs Bunny and Sweetie Show. The call is out because the Ewoks are ready for all new adventures, all new surprises, all new fun. That's more like it. Starting this Saturday, who are you going to call? The Wuzzles, Care Bears, Flintstone Kids, Ghostbusters, Pound Puppies, Bugs Bunny, Ewoks, Weekend Special, The Little, and American Bandstand. Together. Welcome to the real Reitman for the Job, where Egon is blonde and the Busters have a helicopter now. I'm your animated host, Ross May. We've been going through Ivan Reitman's filmography, but you know me, I can't go through his history without stopping to note the debut of The Real Ghostbusters on Saturday morning, September 13th, 1986. That's a little over two years since the debut of the movie, and three months after Reitman's latest film, Legal Eagles. I don't intend on making this a comprehensive podcast on The Real Ghostbusters series, our focus today will just be getting the show off the ground and its debut episode, Ghosts Are Us. But first, our question for the day comes from Rory B. Bellows. Mr. Bellows asks, Ross, do you have any affection for the other Ghostbusters? Oh, you mean Filmation's Ghostbusters. Well, I've seen exactly one episode of the 1975 series. I watched it only a few years ago and... This might shock you. Shock you! But I didn't care for it. I do like it that they have a guy in a gorilla suit. Was that just like a callback to old pseudo-horror movies where Abbott and Costello meet a gorilla? Or like Bella Lugosi meets a Brooklyn gorilla? And yes, that's a real title, folks. Bella Lugosi meets a Brooklyn gorilla. Was there a gorilla on Ghostbusters because of those old movies? Or did Lou Scheimer just feel kids would want to see a man in a gorilla suit? Also, also, the gorilla is named Tracy, but one of the guys is named Kong. That's so weird. Why would you have a gorilla on your show, but name one of your human characters after a very famous gorilla? You can tell I've put a lot of thought into this. But we're probably more familiar with Filmation's animated series. After the success of the movie, Filmation rushed to have a new animated cartoon since they owned the TV rights to the name. 
This will play into when we talk about today's real Ghostbusters episode, Ghosts Are Us. I watched Filmation's show sometimes. Even as a wee little kid, I didn't really care for it. I will say this, though. I thought its theme song was pretty darn good. Hey, it is the second best Ghostbusters theme song in existence. Their logo was good, too, though it kind of seemed like they were promoting ghosts rather than busting them. The Filmation show looked cool at times. I need James E. Talk here, who loves Filmation, but I like the look a lot of their stuff, particularly the backgrounds. I just didn't care for the recycled animation or the very boring stock cartoon plots. That was the biggest problem. And actually, it's funny that even as a kid, I noticed that it barely mattered that the bad guys were ghosts. The main villain, Primeval, looked kind of cool, but he was a skeleton with a robot face. I mean, hey, that sounds neat, but so is he a ghost? And there are episodes where they battle rock monsters, a wizard or a witch, a space pirate. I guess technically a lot of them are supposed to be ghosts, but that never really mattered. Heck, one of their friends, Futura, had purple skin and was from the future. Oh yeah, that was a thing. I mean, sure, go ahead and add time travel, but it seems like Filmation's Ghostbusters wasn't sure of what its focus was. Do they bust ghosts? Kinda. But also they have a talking, sassy car, but also that car flies. And by the way, sometimes they all just travel through time, and they never treat that like it's a big deal. I'm kind of losing track of what they're about. So, even as a kid, I was discerning and did not care for this much, but I'd watch it if nothing better was on. I mean, what was I going to do? Not watch Saturday morning cartoons? Oh, but a couple things. I actually have a fondness for some of the voice actors on the show. You can look them up yourself. You'll recognize most of them. Pat Fraley played one of the leads, and of course I know him as Krang and other characters on Ninja Turtles. Also, the internet shows me now that this version of Ghostbusters had toys, and they look kind of good, actually. There was the car, their house and everything, but this is weird, I had no idea as a child. I never saw these in stores, never saw them in ads or catalogs. Huh. I mean, I still would have gone for the real Ghostbusters toys, but I wonder how widespread these were. Were they not available in Canada, or just my area? And my final note on Filmation's Ghostbusters. As Sears were closing up in Canada, a year before it closed in the States as well, but I found a volume 2 of this series on DVD for 6 bucks. Kind of weird to just find a random old cartoon in a bargain bin at Sears, right? Well, anyway, I bought it. My kids like the real Ghostbusters, and they play with my old toys, but for a while my daughter would pick out Filmation's Ghostbusters and want to watch it. Huh. So this show has at least one fan, my daughter. Enough talking about those other Ghostbusters. It's September of 1986, and we are reading the news. On September 8th, Filmation's Ghostbusters debuts. Hey, I just finished talking about this. 
Okay, okay. But I'm just reminding us of this pertinent fact. Filmation's show aired just five days before the real Ghostbusters. RGB is far and away remembered as the better and more culturally relevant show now, but you have to remember that these two shows and toy lines were directly competing with one another. This explains why today's episode, Ghosts Are Us, was the first to air. Looking back 35 years on, you'd think Citizen Ghost might make the most sense to start with, because it directly follows up on the movie and explains Slimer's whole deal. Or maybe Take Two, which is an episode that also kind of follows up on the movie and excuses away any differences between the movie and the cartoon. But no, Ghosts Are Us was pushed hard because really it is a statement against the other show. Moving back a bit to September 2nd, oh man, this is relevant to the podcast. Kathy Evelyn Smith is sentenced for manslaughter in the death of John Belushi. There's various places to read about the death of John Belushi, but you might want to listen to my episode 6A, The Road to Ghostbusters, where I talk all about this. But Kathy Smith was a drug dealer to the Rolling Stones and other bands, and through the Rolling Stones guest appearance on Saturday Night Live, she met John Belushi and became his main drug dealer. Kathy Smith might have gone uncharged, but this is rather sad. She sold her story to the National Enquirer, going so far as to say that she injected him with the drugs that killed him. That right there suggests she was probably desperate for money. But that article got her charged, and she pleaded guilty to manslaughter. So on September 2nd of 86, four and a half years after John Belushi's death, she was sentenced to three years in jail. Kathy Smith served 15 months. Also, did you know Kathy Smith was Canadian and had an affair with Gordon Lightfoot in the 70s? Huh. She passed away in 2020 in her 70s. Let's switch to positive things. On September 8th again, the same day as Filmation's Ghostbusters debut, another little show hit the airwaves, called The Oprah Winfrey Show. Huh. Wonder how popular that became. And in Disney parks, the Michael Jackson movie attraction, Captain EO, debuts on September 19th. I actually remember seeing this in the 90s. It was weird. And a final debut, the TV series Designing Women, aired on CBS starting September 29th. I've never seen it, but of course I'm noting it here because one of its stars was Annie Potts. And get this, it was distributed by Columbia Pictures. Wow, that's a lot of debuts all in the same month. Ghostbusters, The Real Ghostbusters, Oprah, Captain EO in Disney Parks, and Designing Women all started in September of 1986. Wow. If there's a story to Ghostbusters movie release, it's of everyone being continually caught off guard at how big the movie became. Ivan and Pals and all of Columbia Pictures quickly realized, great, we're the summer hit of 1984. Oh wait, people want t-shirts, and kids are dressing up in costumes. So they quickly figured out that they better capitalize on this. They were hoping for a hit in the vein of Animal House, when really they had a Star Trek 
or a Batman success, something that people wanted to purchase and also had staying power. In fact, the full impact of that lesson didn't really sink in until maybe the 2010s, honestly, because in the 90s, everyone knew that the cartoon and toys would eventually die off, which they did. From comments by Ivan Reitman over the years, it sounds like he's only come to accept that Ghostbusters is going to be perennially popular, again like Star Trek or superheroes or Star Wars, but it sounds like he's only accepted that Ghostbusters will always be around in some way in very recent years. He knew it was beloved, but he wasn't expecting people to be able to buy Ghostbusters tchotchkes in 2021. But I jumped to the future there. I would kind of like to know the exact trajectory of what went on at Columbia Pictures in, you know, the fall of 1984 and going on. When, and exactly which executive, said, okay, this needs to be a toy line and a cartoon show now. From the interviews on the Time Life Real Ghostbusters set, I believe what happened next is Columbia Pictures Television started contacting animation studios they were familiar with to create a short pilot. Oh, by the way, I've been studying the history of Columbia Pictures, something I'll probably do a big series on next year, but I've been studying the history of the company, and Sony Pictures Television today has in the past been called TriStar Television, Columbia Pictures Television, and before all that, Screen Gems. It's all essentially the same company under different names. But hey, if you watch Quentin Tarantino's Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, a big part of that movie is that Leonardo DiCaprio's character used to do a Western show for Screen Gems. So when you hear Screen Gems, that's the same company that later produced the real Ghostbusters. Whether you're dead or alive, you're just a dollar sign to Jake Cahill on Party Law. Thursdays at 8.30, only on NBC. Tangents. I never go on tangents, right? Anyway, Ghostbusters was a hit. It took a bit of time for executives to understand, oh, this appeals to kids, let's make a cartoon series. Send the call out to animation studios we've worked with. I believe at the same time, Columbia TV made some calls to networks, and ABC was the first to express interest in a Ghostbusters cartoon show. As far as I know, only one studio made a pilot, though I'd be very interested if another company did. No, Deke was the first one to jump on this, which made sense. From 83 to 85, Deke had done a Littles cartoon series, co-funded by ABC. ABC and Deke now had a good working relationship, which would later explain why ABC specifically bought 13 episodes of The Real Ghostbusters for a season. Deke made a four-minute pilot, most of it was storyboarded by the real Ghostbusters eventual storyboard supervisor, Kevin Altieri. It's good. If you've never seen it, Google real Ghostbusters pilot. The guys look a little bit different, and they all have gray jumpsuits. Slimer is also still bad, which is fun to see. Some of the shots, including the ghost walking down the street and the final confrontation with all the ghosts and the Marshmallow Man, were copied and redone for the series theme song opening. So that pilot was done, and a tentative deal was in place with ABC even before Ivan Reitman's crew were told about all this. At least, that's the way Ivan's friends and producers, Joe Medjick and Michael C. Gross, make it sound. Again, that's on the Time Life DVD set. So Columbia TV told them about this plan and showed them Deke's pilot. 
Reitman and Gross had a bit of experience in animation from the movie Heavy Metal, but it must have been a shift for all of them to think of their SNL, National Lampoon-style comedy to be transformed into a kid's cartoon show. But they liked the pilot. It's cool that they were game for it. I mean, money tends to make you willing to try new projects. So this cartoon was a go, with Magic and Gross acting as executive producers to make sure the cartoon stuck to the spirit of the movie. Just think, this show could have easily been like the Filmation show, with basically the same plot every episode, the same recycled animation, but just a slightly different themed opponent each week. Oh, a final bit about getting the series started. Despite liking Deke's pilot, everyone still had the option of choosing a different animation studio. Joe Medjuk says they actually did take a few meetings with other studios, but by then Deke was far and away the best choice. ABC trusted them to deliver on time after working on the Littles. They had made a good pilot, so it seemed like Deke was already the most on the ball. Everyone signed on that Deke would be doing the series. Oh, speaking of the pilot again. Right off the bat, there's something we all probably take for granted. Ray Parker Jr.'s song Ghostbusters is featured prominently albeit a cover song. Columbia and Deke knew that the song was such a smash hit, such a strong element tied to the Ghostbusters now, they had to use the song in the cartoon. The fact that Filmation was creating another Ghostbusters series probably cemented this choice, because you need the song to tell kids, hey, this isn't a knockoff Ghostbusters, we have the song you love. So I'm just saying, using Ray Parker Jr.'s song wasn't a given, but now that song is evergreen thanks in part to the cartoon constantly running, running, running it on the show. It's there all the time. Now let's talk about just a few people who started up the production of the series. Joe Medjuk and Michael C. Gross were executive producers representing their pal Ivan Reitman and ensuring that the cartoon would still be recognizable. By the way, Magic says that they read every script and were present for most of the recording sessions. So it's great that they took an interest in the series, when it could have been easy for them to just cast checks and not worry if the cartoon was good or bad. And who was going to write for the show? Deke's president, Jean Chalopin, actually asked today's writers, Len Jansen and Chuck Menville, if they would story edit the entire series. Jansen and Menville were a team dating back to the 70s, writing for cartoons like Sabrina the Teenage Witch, the animated Star Trek, Tarzan, and Smurfs. So would they take charge of the writing side of real Ghostbusters? That was a tall order. The real Ghostbusters was actually weird for the time because there was a 13-episode order by ABC plus an additional 65-episode package for syndication. I don't even know if another cartoon series ever did it like that before. These are typically called seasons 1 and 2, but really they all needed to be worked on at the same time. If you listen to people who actually worked on the show, they don't call it seasons 1 and 2 like fans do. It was all more like season 1 to them, and they just differentiated between the Saturday morning episodes and the syndication package. My point, they needed 78 episodes total. Jansen and Menville had story edited and produced cartoons in the past, but since that giant order needed to be done pronto, they said no thanks. It's funny though, they even wrote the show's story bible, and in interviews on the Time Life DVD set, some people sound like they mistakenly think Jansen and Menville did story edit at the start. They obviously helped in some extra capacity at the start of production, but they weren't the editors. They just wrote four of the Saturday morning episodes. Okay. Deke needed someone to take charge as story editor. 
Mystique's president, Jean Chalopin, turned to an up-and-comer in animation, J. Michael Straczynski. Straczynski started out on TV writing episodes for He-Man and the Masters of the Universe. Oh, I thought it was going to be He-Man. And then he and pal Larry Dottilio were story editors for She-Ra, Princess of Power. Following that, a hop, skip, and a jump over to Deke, where Straczynski and Dottilio both worked on Jace and the Wheeled Warriors. I have never seen this show, but I guess I should watch it someday, because it sounds like the last Deke cartoon right before the real Ghostbusters, and had some of the same people working on it. Thundering across the stars to save the universe from the monster minds. Jay searches for his father to unite the magic root and lead his lightning league to victory over the changing form of Sawboss. Wheeled warriors explode into battle. Lightning strikes. Can Straczynski pull off 78 scripts? Not all written by him. I mean, some written and all overseen by him. I like it. He tells a story of Jean Chalopin offering him this job, and Chalopin sounds like the one Frenchman who actually speaks like Inspector Clouseau. I have told EBC that you are talented. Do not make me Zelaya. And J. Michael Straczynski pulled it off. 78 scripts delivered, many written by himself. Some written by his then-wife, Catherine Drennan, and one by his pal, Larry Dottilio. He got Richard Mueller, who had done the movie's American novelization, and Michael Reeves, who's so prolific in 80s to 2000s cartoons, I'm not even going to try listing all of his work. And there were plenty more great writers that Straczynski picked out that first year. I'm not going to talk about the later seasons today, but this part is relevant to the writer situation. The next year, in 1987, ABC hired a children's consultancy group called Q5, and Q5 made a bunch of recommendations, including Janine being made less cool. They also wanted Ray gone, for Peter and Slimer to be friends now, for Winston to be basically nothing but the driver. A lot of bad decisions. Straczynski left as story editor over the changes. That was when Len Jansen and Chuck Menville actually became story editors for what fans call seasons 3 to 7. Now, let's talk animation. This is tricky because we have to talk about the U.S. side of things and the international side of things, which for today just means Japan, but in later seasons also included South Korea. The 13 Saturday morning episodes were all directed by Richard Rainis. That's not Ramis, that's Rainis with an N. So Richard Rainis was in charge of the higher budgeted Saturday morning episodes and did this again for 1987 for another set of Saturday morning episodes. Just to tell you what he did in the future, immediately following his work on Real Ghostbusters, he worked on the ALF cartoon, then Cops, both for Deke. Starting in the early 90s, Rainus joined The Simpsons as a producer. But he'd also work for other companies. Some other day, I'll go into greater detail about Adelaide Productions, but this is the short version. Columbia Pictures remembered the success of the real Ghostbusters, but in the 90s they saw how Disney had whipped its TV animation department into shape, and Warner Brothers had made a big comeback in animation, with successes like Animaniacs and Batman the Animated Series. Columbia didn't want to be left behind, so why not start their own in-house animation department? That's rather interesting, because Columbia didn't have a history of doing their own animation before. 
Well, anyway, people at Columbia remembered Richard Rainus spearheading the more expensive episodes of the real Ghostbusters for Deke, so they asked him to come work in-house for their new animation division, Adelaide. Rainus also worked in partnership with the more writer-oriented Jeff Klein. So in the 90s, Richard Rainus and Jeff Klein were in charge of Extreme Ghostbusters, the Men in Black cartoon, and the Godzilla cartoon, plus more. All properties Columbia Pictures wanted to be big successes. You may notice those cartoons also look largely the same. They were all made by the same people. Richard Rainus left Adelaide and worked on other shows including Futurama, and then settled back into working exclusively on The Simpsons, which makes sense considering its success. He's been a producer on Simpsons longer than anything else, but there you go. He directed today's episode of The Real Ghostbusters and did such an impressive job that Columbia Pictures would later hire him to be in charge of shows they cared about, including Extreme Ghostbusters. Ghosts Are Us, as well as other episodes, were storyboarded by Kevin Altieri and Dan Reba. DC superhero fans will probably recognize their names. After working on Real Ghostbusters and ALF, and Reba directing the Super Mario Bros. Super Show, both men would work on Batman, the animated series for Warner Brothers. Reba would work on Superman, and they'd both work on Justice League. So DC animation fans usually take note of them, though of course they've done plenty of other work. That's Kevin Altieri and Dan Reba. I'm missing dozens of other people I should probably talk about, but I just want to mention one more. Gabby Payne. Gabby Payne was a character designer for the show. She designed a lot of people and monsters, but everyone in production always points out that she finalized the original Janine herself, and even gave Janine the hairstyle she had at the time. Also... Gabby Payne is trans, and not to gloss over problems I'm sure she's faced, but her co-workers do a pretty good job of calling her Gabby. Just something to know about if you ever think that being trans is a totally new thing. Today she works on the series American Dad. Oh, and you know that promotional artwork of the real Ghostbusters? It's a painting, and all four guys look a little off-model and they're riding Ecto-1, and Peter's even shooting at Slimer? You can tell it was done super early in production. Kevin Altieri did that in rough, Gabby Payne did the final illustration, and it was painted by James Galagos. Kevin Altieri made this all clear in a Facebook post on February 21st, 2020. Now let's fly over to Japan. I talked about this extensively in my 2019 episode on Xmas Marks the Spot, but there used to be an animation studio called KKCND. I've also heard people who have worked on the real Ghostbusters, like Dan Reba, casually call it KK Deke or Deke Japan. Founded by Jean Chalopin and run by Tetsuo Katayama and Shigeru Akagawa, those two men there stand for the KK, and yes, that's despite the fact that Akagawa begins with an A. Anyway, Katayama and Akagawa were formerly of TMS, one of Japan's premier animation studios, but founded this company to handle Deke's workload on a budget. Animation fans, Western and Eastern, usually don't even bother to take note of this company because it was built exclusively to handle Deke's workload in Japan. KKC&D wouldn't animate all of the real Ghostbusters, and there's a lot of erroneous information online about who did what. But KKC&D did Ghosts Are Us and the other Saturday morning episodes. Being animated in Japan meant there basically needed to be another animation director, someone in the Japanese offices. 
That person at KKCND was Kazuo Torada. He had already directed for the Deke series The Littles, Jason the Wheeled Warriors, Mask, and Rainbow Bright. Kazuo Torada worked on the higher-budget real Ghostbusters, including the biggest, most high-profile episode of all, The Halloween Door, which was a primetime special in October of 1989. Kazuo Torada left KKC&D in the 90s for Disney Japan, where he'd supervised the animation done on the Aladdin video sequels there and the Gargoyles TV series. Just looking at IMDb, it appears like Kazuo Torada mostly retired after that, but also seems to have come out of retirement every so often? I'd like to know more about him. Really quickly, music was by Shuki Levy and Haim Saban. Ugh, those guys. 90s kids all know Haim Saban as the executive who brought Power Rangers over to America, making him a multimillionaire. He's also the person who wrote, in air quotes, wrote music, like the Power Rangers theme song which he did not write. He just wanted the music rights. If you wanted to work on Saban's shows, you needed to say he wrote the music. Haim Saban also worked this scam for years on his business partner, Shuki Levy, who did most of their music writing. But don't cry for Shuki Levy, because the both of them would run this scam on ghost musicians, people they contracted to write music for them, and then they'd get the credit for it and bigger paychecks. I have a fondness for the music in the real Ghostbusters, even if it is goofier and not at all Elmer Bernstein's movie score. Because of the way they operated, I have no idea if the music here is really Haim Saban and Shuki Levy, or just Shuki Levy, or it might have mostly been ghostwritten. It's crazy that we can't actually be certain who wrote the music for this show. The real Ghostbusters series is now all set with the exception of the voice cast. You know what? I'll talk about my love for the voice actors another day. But hey, you know who's great? Laura Summer, playing Janine Melnitz. If you have Twitter, check her out at LoveThatLaura. Enough history, everyone. Let's get to the first episode of The Real Ghostbusters, Ghosts Are Us. It aired on ABC Saturday morning of September 13th, 1986. Written by Len Jansen and Chuck Menville, directed by Richard Reynas, with art direction in Japan by Kazuo Tirada. Street Fighter to Avatar? Or that is just a quick detour from The Collector to Electra? Join us on Filmstrips, the podcast that explores all the connections you never knew existed. Each episode, David and I throw a brand new film under the microscope. Maybe it's a musical. Maybe it's a monster movie. Maybe it's terrible. The only rule is that it has to connect to the episode before. So join us each week for a brand new episode available on iTunes, Podomatic, or wherever free podcasts are sold. 
Get yourself a shotgun seat as we take a long, strange trip through the movies. The Ghostbusters are back in theaters, and to celebrate, you can get Ghostbusters 2 items. Have we all gone mad? I guess so, Pete, because that's not all. Why not? You can show support for this podcast and even get a great looking No Ghost Peace logo and 10 Tops trading cards. Check out patreon.com slash rossmayrider. Items available while they last. Thanks and enjoy the podcast. We now return to the real Ghostbusters. Hey, do you want to watch the episode together? Well, there are DVDs. Seriously, everyone, streaming is overrated. Physical media is where it's at. Okay, however, if you don't have this on disc, you can search online. On February 6th, 2021, the official Ghostbusters YouTube channel put this online for free. So that's a good place to go check it out. It's titled Pilot Episode, The Real Ghostbusters, with an exclamation mark at the end. Interesting that they didn't even give its name, Ghosts Are Us. But a heads up, there's no promise that this cartoon will stay up on their YouTube channel. But I'm sure that you're a resourceful person. You can find a copy regardless. Hey, speaking of the future really quickly, so I've touched on the fact that ABC insisted on changes recommended by Q5. Lorenzo Music and Laura Summer were let go as the voices of Peter and Janine in 1987, which was not cool. You know what else? This was also confusing. In the fall of 1987, some of their episodes were still airing for the first time on TV, what we call Season 2. But that same fall in 87, on Saturday mornings, Season 3 debuted with new voices and the updated Janine. So Season 2 and 3 actually ran concurrently, differences and all. Weird. Why do I bring this up? To heap on even more confusion... ABC decided that some of the older episodes could be brought into line by having the new voice actors, Dave Coulier and Kath Susie, redub Peter and Janine's lines. See, I remember this and found it bizarre. I knew the Slimer and the real Ghostbusters openings meant the changed voice cast and a less cool Janine, but every so often you'd get an episode where Janine still had her pointy glasses and cracked wise, but it would be Kath Susie's voice there. This is all to say... Ghosts Are Us was one of the few episodes where Dave Coulier and Kath Susie redubbed characters. That was in early 1988. Notice that they didn't redub Winston, because for that brief time, Arsenio Hall was still on the show. Fans have saved some of these alternate episodes online, but they don't show up on DVDs or on official streaming. The website Spook Central is, as always, a good resource if you're interested in this sort of thing. Oh, and just so that there's no misunderstanding, I think the second voice cast did a good job as well. I just didn't want Lorenzo Music or Laura Summer let go, and that design and personality of the updated Janine is not as cool as the original, that's all I'm saying. The opening credit bumper doesn't have music cutting in, they'd add that to later episodes. We start with a cool shot of the city and hear Ecto-1's siren. When you see Ecto-1, we're already in cartoon territory here because they use a short cycle for the background. Watch for the sign that says, Pink Lady, pass by twice. 
Wow, it must be expensive to produce all these cartoons. Well, we cut corners. Sometimes to save money, our animators will reuse the same backgrounds over and over and over again. By the way, because I have to research every possible reference, of course Pink Lady could refer to anything, and most people in North America would think of the cocktail. But in Japan, there was a singing duo called Pink Lady, Mitsuyu Nomoto and Keiko Masuda. They were very popular in the 70s and early 80s. They were superstars, and in fact, despite not speaking English, they performed concerts in the US and briefly even had an American TV show. This is me always reading into things, but I figure that A, some Japanese animator must have been a fan of Pink Lady, and B, it was a combination of English words that they were certain were correct, so they stuck it into this very early shot of the real Ghostbusters. But speaking of getting English right, the very first time you see Ecto-1's license plate, it's spelled wrong. It's Act 1 here. Stating the obvious now, the cartoon continually calls the car Ecto-1 to remind kids it's distinctive. And, hey, you can go buy it. It's like saying Batmobile instead of, you know, just Batman's car. And you wouldn't think there's much to the name, but listen to my podcasts last year on the movie Ghostbusters for why the license plate reads Ecto-1 and not Ghost-1 or Psych-1 or something. The short answer is that it's a joke by Dan Aykroyd that ectoplasm is supposed to be a physical, supernatural thing that exists outside of the human body. Oh, and it made sense when you realized that in the script, the car was also supposed to be haunted. Okay, it's not a very funny joke, but it's there. We take it for granted now, but an instrumental version of Ray Parker Jr.'s Ghostbusters theme plays right at the start here. Again, keep in mind that the show is being very upfront that we're the real Ghostbusters. Look, we have the real car. We have the song. The song just feels natural now, but remember that they had to keep paying Ray Parker Jr. for it. They felt it was that important. Remember, they really want you to know that this is better and more authentic than Filmation's show. And aside, for fun and research, I've been going through everything Men in Black, and despite Will Smith's song being a hit in 97, they immediately discard it for the cartoon and all the Men in Black sequels. It's interesting that Columbia Pictures knew how important Ray Parker Jr.'s song was to the branding of Ghostbusters, 
but they weren't about to spend that kind of money a decade later on Men in Black. Peter has the first line in the series, Somebody seen a ghost? It's another thing you can probably overlook, but this episode is really front-loading that this is like the movie, everyone. Somebody seen a ghost? Hey, anybody see a ghost? The chocolate factory here is called Conrad's. The women's faces in the crowd are all very anime. I've noticed that it's kind of weird. I know there are some men in the crowd, but all the employees in aprons are all women. Oh well. I mean, also a lot of them are doubles. There might be a lot of twins and triplets, sextuplets even, working at Conrad's. You can tell that this episode, and thus the cartoon on the whole, is being upfront about introducing Slimer as well. He materializes soon with them, and gets a moment where he eats chocolate that flies through the air. This episode's chief concern is proving that these are the real Ghostbusters from the movie, but its secondary purpose is telling kids to love Slimer. Which, hey, mission accomplished for a lot of kids. Maurice LaMarche's voice as Egon here is way deeper and more monotone than it would be later. It's still 80 or 90% the same of what it would be later, but I think he realized that Egon could be a bit more expressive in a higher register than this. Maurice LaMarche has often repeated this story. When he auditioned for the show, everyone was being told to not do impressions of the movie actors, because they didn't have the rights to them. A lot of actors were trying, oh, geeky, wimpy nerd voices for Egon. Of course, that's not really who Egon is, right? LaMarche said, Sorry, the only way I can think of to do this is just do an impression of Harold Ramis, from the movie, which he proceeded to try out. The response was, Okay, nobody is allowed to do an impression except for you. I love that. Also, just little facts I know, but Maurice LaMarche was asked if he ever met Harold Ramis, and he said that unfortunately that never happened. That's too bad, because we have anecdotes from Harold Ramis that he watched the cartoons sometimes and appreciated what they were doing. Oh, and other little facts on Maurice LaMarche. Since he and Joe Medjick both used to live in Toronto, Medjick had already seen LaMarche do stand-up at comedy clubs. Ha, man, Maurice LaMarche kind of knew everyone. Growing up, he was friends with the Myers family. As in Mike Myers. So Maurice was pals with Mike Myers' older brothers, and the younger Mike would sometimes tag along. Then in comedy clubs, Maurice LaMarche performed on the same night a teenage Jim Carrey performed for the first time and bombed on stage. Maurice even gave Jim Carrey encouragement afterwards and told him to try again. That's so awesome. And, and, Maurice was already friends with Arsenio Hall when they both booked real Ghostbusters, because they were both stand-up comedians. Ha. Like I said, Maurice LaMarche kind of knew everybody. Back to our story. Ray calls this bust a unique scientific opportunity. I know he's the most excited about their profession, but I wonder what makes this job special. Honestly, it's just a throwaway line. I get it. Ray rushes inside, and this is an infamous dumb shot. Following him at a distance are Peter, Egon, and another Ray. We're minutes into the series, and already Deke, or rather KKCND, is screwing up and forgot Winston. At least it's such a quick cut most kids probably never noticed. Let's stop to talk about the three ghosts we meet. They're a family, which I'm not going to get into the metaphysical questions of their being ghost parents 
and a ghost child. Hopefully they're not actually human spirits. Boy, that would be dark. The giant ghost baby is briefly called Zonk in the episode, and is voiced by Frank Welker, a.k.a. Ray and Slimer. This is a classic voice Welker does. It's very similar to his Ralph the security guard in Animaniacs. Hey everyone, you probably never even knew there's a long literary tradition to this voice and this type of character. Think back to 1937 and John Steinbeck's story Of Mice and Men. Well, in 1939, there was the highly regarded film Of Mice and Men, starring Burgess Meredith as George and Lon Chaney Jr. as the giant, mentally challenged Lenny. That's where this voice is coming from. Mel Blanc would parody Lon Chaney's performance a lot and adding a lot of duh sounds. He did it for the abominable snow monster, the one who wants a pet rabbit. Just what I always wanted, my own little bunny rabbit. I will name him George, and I will hug him and pet him and squeeze him. See? If you watched that before you were in high school, you probably never even realized it was a joke about Of Mice and Men. A less obvious example was used in Chuck Jones' Three Bear cartoons, where Baby Bear, or Junior, was usually voiced by Stan Freeberg. They're funny cartoons, but horrible if you put any thought into them. Papa Bear is always short-tempered and explodes at annoyances, like his hulking, dim-witted son in a diaper. You oversized freepad? Hey, Paul, wait for me! I want to be in the act, too! Uh, wait! Hey, don't you want me to be in the act, Paul? I will be a good trooper, Paul! I won't do bad! Dale, are you alright, Paul? Watch a Looney Tunes Three Bears cartoon, then watch Ghosts Are Us. The baby, Zonk, is obviously inspired by Junior Bear, this giant wearing a diaper. I love the added touch of Zonk wearing running shoes as well. I find it funny. You also have the same dynamic of the dad being annoyed with his son. And I touched on it, maybe not politically correct in general. But let's talk about the dad ghost, who towards the end of the episode mentions his name is Slug. He's played by our guest actor this episode, Ron Masick. And knock on wood, Ron Masick is still with us in 2021 at the age of 84. You look at his IMDb page and see lots of stuff, but nothing long-lasting. Guest spots on Get Smart, I Dream of Jeannie, Bewitched, Rockford Files. The big exception to this is Murder, she wrote. Ron Masick played Sheriff Mort Metzger, one of the main recurring characters. And even there, just because there are so dang many Murder, she wrote, Ron Masick showed up a lot, but he's still only in like a quarter of the entire series. So yes, Slug is supposed to be like Henry, the Papa Bear of the Chuck Jones Three Bears cartoons. On the commentary to this episode, they say as much, and also mention Archie Bunker as an inspiration too. Huh. I guess Slug is also prejudiced against living humans. Slug is also a little bit notable to me, and to quite a few other kids. The Ghost Zapper, the Kenner flashlight toy, featured Slug as one of the ghosts. He was the proper orange color and everything. I think his design showed up sometimes in the UK Marvel comics too, but I just love that ghost zapper and you turn the wheel and it's the Marshmallow Man or Slimer, or even Gozer, that's the only toy that featured Gozer at all, and here, you got Slug. 
There's something strange in the neighborhood. So who's gonna call? Ghostbusters! Looks horrid. We're cool. We got ghosts at. Let's find those ghosts. Batteries not included. Yeah! I'm no ghost. But he is. I'll project one, too. Over here. We're being watched. Fire ghost zappers. <laughs> Turn to high frequency. We ain't afraid of no ghosts! Ghost zapper, ghost projector guns. Each sold separately. Ghostbusters. New from Kenner. For some reason, the Kenner toys and cartoon show rarely coordinated on ghosts and monsters. You'd think Kenner would have made a boogeyman toy or other scary toys, but they just never did. Huh. So it was notable whenever they actually used a design from the cartoon. Finally, we have the pink mama ghost, who doesn't get her name spoken in the episode. In Jansen and Menville's script, she's named Snarg. It's maybe not one of the best ghost designs. She's made up of, like, tubes running everywhere, which also made her more difficult to animate. I think the logic is supposed to be that the tubes in her hair could transform into a beehive later when she's disguised as a human. My kids and I were watching this, and my wife walked into the room, laughed, and said, Hey, that's Janine, right? Yeah, the pink ghost is pretty clearly Laura Summer again. If we're going to compare these three ghosts to Chuck Jones' three bears, there's one element that's missing. In Looney Tunes, Mama has this droopy, emotionless reaction to everything. Her husband's always blowing his top, and she says, Whatever you say, dear. They didn't think to give the pink ghost those deadpan reactions. That really completes the comedic effect. Two final things. One, this ghost family would make a guest appearance again in the season one finale, Xmas Marks the Spot. Pretty much every ghost the Ghostbusters trapped appear inside the containment unit. Listen to my 2019 holiday episode, Xmas Marks the Spot, for more information on that. And a second thing regarding these ghosts. Dan Reba points out that as he was storyboarding this cartoon, he didn't have the design for the ghosts yet, so he just drew in with stand-in ghosts. They might have looked like the Pac-Man ghosts or something. This gives you an idea of how much work the Japanese animators had to do. Sometimes they had to interpret what the Deke offices were giving them, which is why there are so many mistakes on the show. We got sidetracked there, but now you're properly educated for what you're about to see. Looking at his PKE meter, Egon calls the ghosts Class 5 Full Torso Apparitions. Of course, the reason he says that is it's exactly what Ray calls Slimer in the movie. But if you give it a bit of thought, the full torso part doesn't make much sense here. Ray called Slimer a full torso apparition because Slimer is just a face, torso, and arms. Slimer has no legs and no human-ish body. That's why Slimer is called full torso. Here, these ghosts all have legs, so Egon should probably call them full body apparitions. I like the gag, what warped dimension do you think they came from? Possibly New Jersey. Pretty much everyone at Deke were California people, but to try to get New York flavor, they'd periodically just dump on New Jersey. I have no idea if that's a real sentiment from New Yorkers. I like the factory in here, all the machinery. The cartoon would do this a lot, and never really care if a factory or industrial area had any relation to real life. There's scaffolding here, a vertical conveyor belt. Does a chocolate factory need anything like this? Who cares, because it makes for a good visual. The ghost family jumps into a machine, so Peter shoots into a pipe, and Ray holds a trap at its exit. Huh. I don't know if a proton stream in the movies would bend to the contours of a pipe, like it's water or something. But who cares? The ghosts are trapped. 
Outside, the employees are cheering and a camera crew is filming the Ghostbusters. It's very much calling back to the movie, where the Ghostbusters are filmed and mobbed by people after they catch Slimer. Early episodes of the cartoon would focus on this a lot. The Ghostbusters are still celebrities just for doing their jobs. Not that this ever entirely goes away on the show, but in later seasons they move away from this more, and the Busters will do their job, and news media isn't reporting on them for a routine bust like this. I guess the public, and news, finally got used to the Ghostbusters. And speaking of the news, the news van appears to say J-M-E-W-T-V. I can't guess what that stands for. See, despite being for kids, I think the show has good moments, some smart jokes that could have been in the movie. Gentlemen, I'm the owner of this plant and I can't thank you enough. Peter says, true, true. I've never liked how Winston's mouth doesn't match up to what he's saying there on camera. Oh well. The guys drive back to the firehouse. Oh hey, we've had Act 1, and now their plate reads Act 1. I mean, appropriate, when we're in the first act of the show. Even if it's a throwaway line, I find it weird that Peter compliments Janine. How's the most beautiful secretary in the world? Oh hey, things that don't matter. Janine is working on a typewriter here when she had a computer in the movie. Huh, you'd think Egon would insist on using current technology. The guys give Janine big boxes of chocolate from the factory, and she seems annoyed with them that they're all empty. That's a bit unfair, especially when it's immediately obvious that Slimer ate everything. We get our first collective Slimer on the cartoon. Got to let the kids know about this great new character, everyone. <laughs> I've been slimed! Yuck. Slimer slimes Peter for good measure, like in the movie. Ray takes the trap downstairs and we see the new ecto-containment unit. I always like this set, and we'll see a lot of it over the series. Once you get over Egon being blonde, and the Marshmallow Man existing and being mostly good, this larger basement and containment unit are the other big discrepancies from the movie. If you care about this sort of thing, some fans have made the case that the explosion in the movie created such a blast underground that the Ghostbusters were able to build a larger basement. That seems unlikely, but I don't care, sure. Or there was just empty space behind the one wall in the movie's basement. I mean, we saw white light coming out of that wall in the movie. Notice that Ray clearly calls it the ecto-containment unit. It's basically a mini-introduction here. Jansen and Menville are making sure kids are familiar with a lot of the names and terms they'll want to know on this show. Okay, now here's some knowledge for you folks. I was very proud of the math I did when I covered the Ghostbusters movie, the business loan they got, and Egon's Twinkie analogy not making sense. But here you go. Ray says that the new containment unit is 220 volts and puts out 10 megawatts. Holy cow! 10 megawatts could power thousands of homes, so the containment unit really does need a lot of power. Ahem. I took electrical. I know Watts and Ohm's Law, even if Jansen and Menville don't. Sorry, guys. So, the formulas. Power equals voltage times current. 10 megawatts equals 220 volts times the amperage we're looking for. 10 million watts divided by 220 volts equals... 45.5 kiloamps. With me so far? That was Watt's law. 
let's use Ohm's law to discover the resistance. Voltage equals current times resistance. That's still 220 volts divided by 45.5 kiloamps equals 0 0.00483 ohms. Everyone, that's an incredible figure. An energy-efficient LED bulb has nowhere near half a hundredth of an ohm. The containment unit is like the most energy-efficient machine ever created. And for it to only require 220 volts, like a washing machine? Okay, okay, sorry. The writers, Jansen and Menville, are clever, but they didn't know electrical formulas. They picked 10 megawatts because they knew that was a lot. The honest answer is that short phrase from Ray, 220 volt, 10 megawatt, doesn't make any sense. It's impossible in our universe. But wait, you say, what if the ghosts were powering the unit somehow, or some sci-fi thing where a dimensional rift is supplying the great power difference? Well, okay. Except then, why do the Ghostbusters need to power the containment unit themselves at all? If some Doctor Who or Star Trek sort of shenanigans are happening, and that's supplying most of their power, at that point they could just acquire a little bit more and do away with the 220 volts from the firehouse altogether. Frankly, you wouldn't need an off switch or a generator like they would need in the episode Killer Watt. If the containment unit was in any way self-powering, all these stories about the electricity being cut off wouldn't make any sense then. Also, if we're going to talk about that episode, Killer Watt, also written by Jansen and Menville, a human on a bicycle could generate between 60 to 100 watts. So enough to power one incandescent light bulb, not 10 million of them. It's made very clear on the show, even in this episode, that the power is being supplied from the Ghostbusters side of things. So, sorry, Ray's tossed-off comet here just doesn't make any sense. Let me ask you a question. Why would a man whose shirt says genius at work spend all of his time watching a children's cartoon show? I withdraw my question. <clears throat> Moving right along. The guys are all sleeping together in the firehouse, which is kind of weird when you consider that the only memorable scene of them all together in their beds in the movie was... Uh, the dream sequence. I think the RGB production saw this as a way of expediency. If the Ghostbusters all live at the firehouse, then you don't need to bother showing them going to and from work, and you could have domestic problems with Slimer and all of that. It just made stories a lot faster and easier if the guys lived there. It's interesting that my little kid mind never even considered that they might not want to live together. It's so much fun being a Ghostbuster. But of course, when you see Ghostbusters 2... Of course Peter wants his own apartment. That makes more sense. Watch the first shot. You can actually see a translucent Slimer above Ray's bed. Peter has a magazine on him, and it actually says magazine. I wish I could tell what's on the cover because it kind of looks like a ghost or something with a big nose. Egon fell asleep with a book as well, and he still has his glasses on. Ray sleeps with a stuffed toy of the Marshmallow Man, something that carried over from the four-minute pilot of the cartoon. I think Deke knew they wanted to fit in the Marshmallow Man, and this was kind of the only way you could do it for episodes where the Marshmallow Man doesn't appear. Slimer dreams of food while floating in midair. I like it that the pillow floats with him somehow. Then he eats it. Ah. Slimer raids the fridge for a snack, but this wakes up Winston. Not wanting to get into trouble, Slimer flies down to the basement, but Winston follows the sounds all the way down. Huh. 
You know, that means Winston went down three flights of stairs. The bedroom is on the top floor. The kitchen is on the second. There's the main floor garage and then the basement. That's a long way to go. Especially when, if there's a weird noise, and if you notice Slimer isn't around, it was probably Slimer making that noise. I know this is a first episode, but it seems like Winston should be up on the fact that Slimer is a food monster. Hey, speaking of the firehouse's layout, I never really paid attention that it's consistent from episode to episode, but only the main floor, the garage, looks like the movie. Here, for instance, the kitchen is its own enclosed room. In the movie, Egon's lab area led directly to an open kitchen area where they had the arcade and pinball machines off to one side. Huh. Not a big deal. I just find it neat that the real Ghostbusters did have a consistent layout to the firehouse, but the upper levels didn't match the movie. Come to think of it, why don't we see arcade and pinball machines in the cartoon firehouse? Seems like a cool thing to include. Huh. Oh yeah, but our story. Slimer accidentally turns off a giant switch. Again, callbacks to the movie, where a big switch turned off the containment unit. It's not commented on, but I think it's telling that in episodes like Mrs. Rogers' Neighborhood, they will have installed a more sophisticated security system where you can't just turn everything off with a switch. Egon must have learned a lesson from moments like this. Slimer figures out his mistake and switches the power back on, but not before the ghost family can escape. I wonder why just them... This gets into everything inside the containment unit. See the episode and listen to my talk about Xmas marks the spot. But maybe these ghosts were hanging around the unit's exit? The ghosts follow a big red pipe through a wall, which is cartoony, and much like the movie kind of obscures the details on how everything works. I mean, was that pipe a power supply? The cartoon treats it like an empty water pipe, which would not make sense. Let me ask you a question. Why would a man whose shirt says genius at work spend all of his time watching a children's cartoon show? I withdraw my question. Oof, I'm bad for this. Anyway, the family escapes to the roof, and we hear the dad ghost call the baby Zonk. Slug, the dad, immediately comes up with a plan for the episode. They're going to disguise themselves as humans and create a phony ghost exterminator business. I like it that the human disguises are so bad. You'd immediately think, huh, I'm pretty sure you look like monsters. Oh well. There's a joke in the next scene that I think could be improved a bit. In a hospital, a doctor tells a patient to say, ah. The patient does this, but then screams when he sees the baby ghost. The joke is supposed to be that the patient yells, ah, when he sees the ghost, but the camera should have stayed on him, and maybe he shouldn't have said a quiet ah first. It doesn't come across as funny, but if you think about it, you can tell it was written down as a joke. With a bit more focus on the man, it could have worked. Part of the joke is also that all the people rush out of the room, including a man in a wheelchair and a man on crutches. The idea that they can all move super fast once they see a ghost. When the Ecto-1 rolls up to the hospital, a sign says, Entra Reese. More quips from Peter. I like it that he says, Have no fear, Dr. Venkman and his staff are here. As if they all just work for him. It's good. Here, we really get into the parody of ghostbusting in general. So also trying to dump on Filmation's show. They've got their own van. Say, I guess the ghosts stole that van from somewhere? Anyway, they've got their own van with an X over Zonk's face. They've got a trash can for a trap, just really saying how shoddy other Ghostbusters are. 
and of course the real Ghostbusters are surprised as this fake crew drives off. Ghosts Are Us is a clever enough name because, you know, they are ghosts. Ghostbusters, if it goes boo, we know what to do. No, ma'am, this is the real Ghostbusters, not Ghosts Are Us. Never mind. Right there, reminding you that you're watching the real deal. I don't want to say that this was the only time that someone said real Ghostbusters on the show, but I know it only happened very rarely. They get a call for the Smaldorf Hotel. Obviously a gag on the Waldorf Astoria Hotel, once the biggest and fanciest hotel in New York. Also, very close to the New York Public Library. Also, the name of one of my favorite Muppets. When I was a kid, I left home to join a traveling circus. Oh, were your folks upset? Are you kidding? They're the ones who got me the job! <laughs> I like all the colorful lights coming out of the hotel. Yep, Ghosts Are Us beat them to the punch again. When they come out of the front, watch the crowd. Real Ghostbusters often has weirdo background characters, and there's a man there dressed sort of... sort of like a policeman, but not really, and he's waving this teeny tiny flag. It's funny. Winston is a few feet away from them in one shot, and then suddenly he and the guys are 15 or more feet away, behind a crowd. He teleported. Also, I like the gag that Zonk lifts his head out of the trash can, but it kind of proves the point that the Ghostbusters are pretty stupid about all this. Peter and Ray go, huh, those guys are familiar. And ugly. They don't notice the obvious thing that, hey, these are ghosts that you've already tangled with. Janine radios the guys, and her call sign is Spook Central. Eh, I like it. It's another reference to the movie where Ray calls Dana's apartment Spook Central. This changes the context of that, but whatever. And hey, as I've mentioned before, if you Google Spook Central, go check out Paul Rudolph's website. He has probably the most comprehensive resource online of Ghostbusters information, media clips and images, lots and lots of good stuff. Anyway, I like it. Janine says, This whatchamadoodle, she means the PKE meter, This whatchamadoodle says we're three ghosts short. First off, I love it that Janine was reading it when Egon never bothered to do it. I think this is also the only time a PKE meter has ever been able to read inside the containment unit. I mean, hey, the rules can be whatever you want, but I don't think this happens in any other episode. Oh, this is the point that Peter and Winston figure out what's going on. Hey, remember those hideous monsters we fought? Well, these hideous humans look just like them. Way to go, guys. Peter says they caught the ghost family that morning. So this has all been in the span of a few hours? Wow. Without that line, I would have assumed that this was a couple days? I mean, Egon was saying that they might go out of business, but I guess this is all just happening super fast. There's another group, Slimer, when everyone realizes he must have turned off that very big, very easy to turn off switch. Hey guys, you know you can build things with key switches or multiple switches and buttons, right? It's not hard to build. Well, no time for that. Slug, impersonating a client, calls the Ghostbusters to come to an old toy factory in Brooklyn. Watch behind the guys in the Ecto-1 here. You can't really tell what it is without context, but you can see parts of Ecto-2, the helicopter, in the back of the car. Watch Slug's arm when they're all in the phone booth. His right arm suddenly materializes. I guess you can't call it an animation mistake because he is, after all, a ghost. Some of the signs outside of the phone booth include Elke, with an extra E at the end. Also, Jansen's, with a Z-E in the middle. 
I'm guessing Japanese animators were corrupting writer Len Jansen's name for that sign. I also like it. The ghosts comically start moving the entire telephone booth, and they appear to be on a normal New York street. Then the next moment, seemingly only feet away, they're in this totally desolate area with a broken fence and an old abandoned factory. It makes no sense, but I love it. The ghosts go into the factory, and remember I was saying that the show didn't care if industrial areas made practical sense? There are raised walkways crisscrossing everywhere. There's like a gothic castle staircase inside a factory. When the ghosts look down at something, there's machinery or just things that vaguely look like a human skull. Slug wants to wake up an old friend, Turlock, to scare off the Ghostbusters. Turlock sounds like a great name for a monster or a ghost, but it's actually a town in California. Wild. Wikipedia tells me it's probably a corruption of the Irish town, Turlow. Hey, what exactly is Slug's plan here? They were showing up the Ghostbusters. Maybe they should have kept trying to destroy their business? You know, keep this ruse going for more than just one day? Instead, they're going to ambush the Busters with a powerful Class 7 ghost named Turlock. Huh. Seems like the whole running them out of business thing was kind of pointless if they're just going to sick a big scary ghost on the guys. But this doesn't matter anyway. Turns out that another ghost, a more powerful being, moved into the abandoned factory and told the real Turlock to hit the road. Or maybe he, like, ate Turlock. This isn't made clear. I like the shot of Slug at a little opening, calling for Turlock to wake up, and you zoom out, realizing there's something bigger and far scarier hiding in all that machinery. IMDB tells me Ron Masick also played this big scary ghost. The voice is so altered that I can't tell, but it's cool. At this moment, we only see it as sort of clouds and a giant eyeball. The big ghost grabs some toys laying around, and then, I guess, makes them bigger and transforms them all into a giant toy monster. It chases after Ghosts Are Us. But the real Ghostbusters show up. Egon says the big ghost is a full-magnitude Class 10, and a little needle cartoonishly pops out of the side of the PKE meter. I've talked about this before, the cartoon treats classifying the ghosts as an indication of power, but other Ghostbusters ephemera says the numbers determines certain properties about the ghosts, like if they can possess you or turn invisible or whatever, what their powers are. I like this sliding scale here, it's easiest to understand. Winston says, whatever it is, it's about to mash Manhattan into cheese spread. Huh, that's a weird thing to say if they're supposed to be in Brooklyn. I figured it out, though. This only makes sense in the script if you understand that the final confrontation is going to take place on the Brooklyn Bridge. So I guess Winston already magically knows the chase is going to end there, but even if everybody was going in that direction, it's impossible for Winston to know that the ghosts were all running towards the Brooklyn Bridge and then Manhattan. Let me ask you a question. Why would a man whose shirt says genius at work spend all of his time watching a children's cartoon show? I withdraw my question. I know, Homer. I know. Okay, the cartoon here has established that these are the real Ghostbusters, the ones you want to see from the movie. We've also become familiar with our new pal Slimer. Now here's the third thing to get excited about, kids. The Ghostbusters have a helicopter now. There are so many Kenner toys for you to go buy. Egon pilots, and Ray sits in the backseat of Ecto-2. I like the gag... Hey, Egon, ever gotten around to taking those flying lessons? No. Ha. Huh? Ecto-2 pops out of the rear of the car, 
which I'm pretty sure never happens again in the series. Also, I can confirm your Ecto-2 toy is not going to fit inside the back of the Ecto-1. But the car door swings open from the bottom, just like the Kenner plastic toy. On the cartoon, Ecto-1's back door would swing open different ways on the show, however a sequence required it. Storyboard supervisor Kevin Altieri mentions that he really likes this moment. He thinks it's a ton of fun. Speaking about Ecto-2, if you listen to the commentary on the Time Life disc, storyboard artists Kevin Altieri and Dan Reba also sound a bit confused. They sure do sound like they designed Ecto-2 and were disappointed it wasn't turned into a toy. Huh. Maybe they forgot about the toy, or maybe they meant something else? You can tell Andy Mangles remembered the toy and doesn't quite understand what they're talking about. I have no idea who designed what first, the Kenner toy or the animation model here. And yes, everybody, I do remember that the toy only seats one person, while here in the cartoon, it's a two-seater. There's a traffic jam, and a crazy-looking guy in a taxi who is obviously voiced by Lorenzo Music. Occasionally, they got music to play other characters, and they never really should have. His voice was so distinctive, and he couldn't alter it in the way LaMarche or Welker can. Ha, and the top of the taxi says, Buster. A song by the girl duo Tahiti plays here, Driving Me Crazy. The singers in Tahiti are Tyron Perry and Tanya Townsend. The music was produced and co-written by Ollie E. Brown, who grew up with Ray Parker Jr. They went to school together in Detroit and learned music together. Ollie E. Brown is also featured on the Ghostbusters music video. I've said before, Joe Medjic and Michael C. Gross asked Parker if he wanted to produce the pop music for the real Ghostbusters, and he said no thank you, but recommended his pal, Ollie E. Brown. That song is also featured in the episode Janine's Genie during an airplane sequence. Ecto-1 is moving slow because of the traffic, and Peter manages to pop a set of wheels up on a guardrail. I have to wonder if this was inspired by what Deke did in their short pilot, where Ecto-1 briefly, and impossibly, drives up the suspension cables of a bridge. Ecto-2 touches down, and Egon is able to use a trap to just suck up the family of ghosts. Watch that sequence. There's some fun anime-style reactions by Ray and Egon, and Zonk smashing on the cars is pretty cool. Ha! And speaking of good animation, when Winston radios them, animators gave him some water underneath his eyes, like this is a desperate situation, and Winston might tear up. It doesn't really make sense, but it looks nice. Then Peter feels the need to radio everyone. Hey, Slimer sucks. This is all his fault. He even says that they could be sleeping in their jammies if it wasn't for him. Which again, 
How long does this episode take place over? We've established it as being a day now, but Peter saying he could be at home asleep seems like it might still be morning for them. Weird. Well, the big toy monster starts attacking Ecto-2. I like Egon's comment, aim for the monkey. He says it so matter-of-factly. Another moment that I think is supposed to be a joke, but doesn't entirely play correctly. Ray zaps the ghost, and it pops open a jack-in-the-box head. Then they scream. Then the head growls at them. Then they scream again. It's just edited a bit wrong. It's supposed to be funny, because Ray shoots it open, and a way more frightening jack-in-the-box head is there. Ah, it scares him and Egon. The editing doesn't make that clear, but if you didn't have multiple shots and showed a freaky head and then Egon and Ray scared silly by it, that could have been funny. Ray has a dumb idea. He shoots a grappling hook on the monster. I don't know what he was trying to accomplish by doing that. The monster just whirls them around until Winston and Peter fire at it. Ecto-2 crashes, and the toy monster runs up the suspension cables. The show isn't really concerned with keeping this monster a consistent size. And again, I'm guessing there was some more inspiration from Deke's pilot because Ecto-1 drove up the suspension cables in that pilot. I love the heroic music. You'll just have to watch the episode yourself to listen to it. But Slimer remembers how he screwed up, so he growls like a dog and charges at the monster. Slimer greases the cables, making the toy monster slip into the East River. Meanwhile, I guess it was handy Ray grappled the helicopter to the monster after all, because Egon can set Ecto-2 to overload. Huh. As far as I know, Ecto-2 is just a helicopter, and it didn't have any proton weapons on it. I mean, Ray was firing by just using his own proton pack. But I guess Egon is making it out like Ecto-2 is nuclear-powered, because he can set it to overload. Hey, why not? We see a boat pass by underneath the bridge. This is a somewhat famous bit to real Ghostbusters superfans. The boat has the word Goyukin written on it. Goyukin is a 1969 samurai film, and it stars Tatsuya Nakadai. Oh man, I love him. But I've seen Goyukin, and can tell you why it's on this boat. Goyukin roughly means deposit, and the title refers to ships laden with gold that are bound to be delivered to the Shogun. In the movie, bad guys try to wreck the ships and steal the gold. Yeah, some Japanese animator must have liked the film Goyukin, but more importantly, this is a joke. This little tugboat here, which looks like it maybe hauls trash barges or something, but its name references a movie about treasure ships. Ha, irony. We finally get a look at the actual Class 10 ghost, and it's this Lovecraftian horror with fangs and a giant eye. Peter's joke here doesn't really work. Why do I suddenly want sushi? It should be the opposite of that, like, I don't want to eat fish now. Though that still wouldn't work, because you'd need to set up a line like that. Whatever, we quickly forget this. 
I like the giant electrical storm as Ecto-2 goes kablooey in the river. So, I guess every other time you see Ecto-2 in the show, that's a new helicopter that Egon and Ray made. And it would show up a lot again. I cheated and looked at the online Ghostbusters wiki, but Ecto-2 would show up in 20 episodes total. And now it's nighttime. So what is the chronology of this day anyway? I guess after working late last night, Peter was expecting to sleep away most of this day. If there's a weakness to the script, it's that the time frame really doesn't make any sense. Rather than clear away the debris and cars or anything, a crowd forms on the Brooklyn Bridge. The tricycle that the giant ghost was using is still... giant. Normally in a cartoon, after you defeat the big monster or wizard or whatever, its magic ends once it's gone. But not here, I guess. Hey, come to think of that really quickly, so I guess they blew up and effectively killed a ghost. Wow. That's a rarity on this show as well. They'd either trap an entity or banish something to another dimension, like the Boogeyman. I'll keep an eye out in the future, but I can't think of another instance where the Busters effectively killed a ghost. Arguably the episode Future Tense, that's the only other one I can think of offhand. The Ghostbusters and Slimer are on the back of this giant tricycle, and Peter tells the Spud, You look marvelous. Huh, now that's a really weird joke. No kid is going to get that today. Peter is imitating Billy Crystal, who was doing a very broad impression of Argentine actor Fernando Lamas. Billy Crystal had hosted SNL many times. Heck, he was on an episode during its first season. But Crystal was a cast member from 1984 to 85, and he'd do this character Fernando, where the joke was just that he was a smooth-talking foreigner? That was pretty much the entire joke. He'd say, you look marvelous a lot. He had a music video and everything. Weird, and extra weird that you have this Bill Murray proxy character stealing a Billy Crystal joke. Crazy. Not trying to be mean here, but uh, maybe Jansen and Menville were a bit shaky on what Bill Murray's jokes were. Maybe they confused the two comedians? Possibly. And Slimer smooches Peter. Yuck! And the ghost family rattle around inside the ghost trap. Interesting that you can hear inside the trap, and it bulges and moves around, because the rest of the series was usually pretty good about sticking to the integrity of the trap, that sound and cartoony effects could not escape out of it. Oh, it might rattle around or smoke when it's about to break, but that was it. And there you have it. I don't think this is the best episode of Real Ghostbusters. In fact, I think it's just the tiniest bit off compared to the rest of the series like the PKE meter reading inside the containment unit, and especially killing a giant monster ghost. But hey, compared to a lot of first episodes of other shows, this is darn close to what the real Ghostbusters wants to be. And the episode introduced, or reintroduced, kids to the Ghostbusters premise and characters, boosted Slimer, made us all want to buy toys like Ecto-2. And all those other Ghostbusters? Pfft, they're shoddy in comparison, we don't want those ones. The Real Ghostbusters would continue airing on Saturday mornings in 1986, culminating in Xmas Marks the Spot on December 13th. Hey, if you haven't, please do go and listen to my 2019 episode on Xmas Marks the Spot, where I go into greater details about the animation studio KKCND, about how the cartoon led up to showing us inside the containment unit, which is a thread that really begins in this episode. Well, it really begins in the movie, but there, we're reintroduced to the containment unit here. Also, 
Today we talked about the first episode aired on ABC, and Xmas Marks the Spot would be the final episode of Real Ghostbusters that aired on ABC, on Christmas Eve, 1994. Seriously, you'll have some fun. And there's so much more Real Ghostbusters to look forward to. Watch it on DVD, or watch it on the Ghostbusters YouTube channel. I'm Ross May, and you can find me on Twitter at Ross May Writer, or go to RossMayWriter.com to find my email there. A special thank you again to the real Janine Melnitz, Laura Summer, who recorded our intro. Follow her on Twitter at LoveThatLaura. We've covered Ghostbusters. We've covered Legal Eagles. Please join us soon for Twins, Ivan Reitman's 1988 film. Ivan has found his new muse after Bill Murray, and it's Arnold Schwarzenegger, everybody. That'll be fun, but for now, we'd better split up. We can do more damage that way. Absolutely marvelous. And this is from my car.